brothers and sisters. It is good to be with you today and to have this privilege to open God's Word with you. In preparing for this message, the Lord used two circumstances to lead me to our passage today. The first is the occasion of Pentecost, which was last Sunday. Um, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, He sent His Holy Spirit and gave birth to His church, empowering us for witness from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Having finished our study in John, uh, it seemed fitting to, to pick up with something uh, like the, the topic of the Holy Spirit. But also, personally and, and observed within our body, I know there's much suffering that we're going through. Many families have known suffering this year. Illnesses, some of us are even dealing with cancer. Others are dealing with the aftermath of a drastic vocational change. Others are dealing with conflict at work or financial difficulties or the death of a loved one. I know of at least two miscarriages that have occurred this spring. My wife and I experienced one of these. And we have sought great solace from our God in this time. In addition to our suffering, though, we look around us, we read in the news of an unprecedented suffering in the world experienced by believers in other countries. Groups like ISIS are beheading believers for having confessed the name of the Lord Jesus. In addition, in addition to that, we here in the United States, uh, we've enjoyed broad religious freedoms for some time. But it seems that those freedoms are eroding under our feet like sand on a beach with each wave of legislation, judicial decision, and even executive order. Our freedom of religion has been downgraded or is being downgraded to a freedom of worship. That is, we're being told we're free to confess our faith in its fullest moral implications so long as we confine our confession to our hearts, our homes, and our pews. The social price of proclaiming the gospel of costly discipleship to Jesus Christ is climbing steeply. As it has for our brothers and sisters around the world, proclaiming such a gospel is going to require a willingness to suffer in the months and years to come, even here. So church, how will we endure these sufferings? Where does our hope come from? What is the nature of that hope? And what role does God's Holy Spirit play in our lives as saints in this present time of suffering? With all these questions in mind, I want you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we'll begin in verse 18. As you're turning, let me review our context. The theme of the book of Romans, we can say, is justification by faith alone. And we find this theme introduced by Paul in, in chapter 1 of Romans in verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the the righteous shall live by faith. Now to this point in Paul's letter, he's expounded that justification by faith theme in chapters 1 through 4. And in chapters 5 through 7 and now into 8, he discusses the hope of that gospel for this present life and for the, for the age to come. In the immediate chapter before this, chapter 7, Paul has just lamented his war with sin and his flesh. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He continues, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He laments his struggle with sin. Now in chapter 8, we find a golden vein of teaching on the Holy Spirit. And as one commentator has said, there's three pictures of the Spirit here. The Spirit of life in verses 1 through 13. The Spirit of adoption in verses 14 through 17. And here in verse 18, we find the spirit of glory. Verses 18 through 30. In each of these portraits, the believer finds assurance that eternal life is his or her destiny. We're going to be looking at this final section uh, of teaching on the spirit. Verses 18 through 30. So if you are able, would you please stand with me as we read God's word. For I consider that the suffering, sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows What is the mind of the Spirit? Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers." 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this opportunity to to consider your word together. Would your spirit have reign in our hearts and minds? Would your word come through clearly? And would we respond in faith and repentance as you would lead us? Pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. The title for this sermon today is The Hope and Help of the Holy Spirit in this present age of suffering. The Hope and Help of the Holy Spirit in this present age of suffering. There is much to expound in these verses, and we will not get to all of it today. But as we begin in verse 18, we see Paul's central claim for this section, namely that present sufferings are nothing to be compared to future glory. Present sufferings are nothing compared to future glory. He writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We might summarize this. You ain't seen nothing yet. Saints, we haven't seen all that God is going to do for us. Paul begins saying, I consider, I consider that the sufferings, he's not here just giving mere personal opinion. Paul is teaching us in his apostolic authority and office. You might wonder, well, what is the, the suffering that he's talking about here? Well, it could be any number of things. In verse 17, just before this, we're told that we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Jesus has taught us that we will be persecuted, that if the world maligned him as the prince of demons, it will malign us. Paul reiterates that when he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The world hated Jesus. It's going to hate those who claim Jesus as their Lord. So it's certainly suffering for the name of Christ. But it it also, as we'll see, is suffering that results from our corruptibility and mortality. As we will see in the following verses, death, disease, and decay are present realities within this world. Jesus knew this kind of suffering. Not only on his cross and his own death, and suffering leading up to it, but in the loss of loved ones. In fact, as, as my wife and I grieved the loss of our little one this spring, I was frequently encouraged to remember that Jesus, our sympathetic high priest, wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. And we know that at the end of time, the, the making of right of everything that's wrong in this world will involve the wiping away of every tear from our eyes, and death will be no more, and neither will there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So suffering that results from our present fallen physical condition is certainly in view. But we also might add to this Paul's lament of his own sin 
and the suffering that that, that brings and the, sin, the suffering that comes to us through the sin of others. We're called to pray now, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's coming a day when that won't be the case. But now, at this present time, these sufferings are common to us. Now he speaks of the glory to be revealed. This is the the final inheritance, if you will. Presently, Paul has taught us earlier in chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here Paul is speaking of a glory that is to come. A destiny of glory that includes those who have believed on and trusted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother West preached a sermon from 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, which says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is the key verse. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In Colossians 3, we see that this glory is bound up with Jesus' return. When Christ, who is your life, appears, Paul writes, then you will also appear with him in glory. His return is the moment of our glory. When we see him, we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is, as John says. His return is our blessed hope. So Paul's premise, his his underlying theme for this whole section is that present sufferings are nothing to be compared to the glory that is to come. And it's in this vein that we read and understand the Spirit as he is explicated here. So we'll see now that we'll look at the hope of the Holy Spirit in verses 19 through 25. The hope of the Holy Spirit. And this this hope comes in two movements. The first is in creation's groaning for glory and also in the saints' eager expectation for glory. Read back here in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So we see the the created order, that's everything that's not human, up on its tiptoes, waiting, waiting for something that is to come. And what is it waiting for? Well, it says it's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God in verse 19, and that it waits to be set free in verse 21 from its bondage to decay and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, who are these sons or children of God? We noted earlier that we have some portraits of the, of the Spirit given to us in, in Romans 8. And one of those is that He is the Spirit of Christ. If you look back just a few verses to verse 9 of Romans 8, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, 
If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, He's an indwelling Spirit. But it continues, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, and is in you by His Spirit, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So we see that the Spirit uh, is... uh, the Spirit of Christ, and make, He makes us His. He makes us belong to Christ. Another image of the Spirit here is the Spirit of adoption. Romans eight fourteen through 17 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. As sons, by whom we cry, Abba, or Papa, Daddy, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So the, the children of God, the sons of God, are those who have the Spirit of God. And this Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The spirit of our adoption. To have Jesus is to have the spirit. To have the spirit is to have Jesus. You can't have one without the other. And just as one receives Jesus by faith, so one receives the spirit by faith, as Paul teaches us in Galatians 3. Paul here tells us that creation, in a figurative sense, is, is up on its tiptoes. It's waiting. It's looking for the glory that is to be revealed, namely the the revealing of the sons of God and our glory. Creation's hope is bound up with the hope of the saints. And this, this hope isn't an immaterial, ethereal hope. This is a real and tangible hope. We long for a new heaven and a new earth. We won't be just sitting around on clouds playing harps. We'll be, we will be exploring and, and, um, seeing the glory of God proclaimed through the new creation. But as as for now, this present created order has been subjected to futility, we read. This this phrase, subjected to futility, refers to creation's failure to function properly. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We're not supposed to have thorns and thistles growing out of the ground. And here we see the curse of God on the ground because of Adam's sin from Genesis chapter 3. Verse 17 reads, Cursed is the ground because of you, that is Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So the created order has been subjected to futility because of sin. Now, it says, because of him who subjected it in hope. Who is this him that subjected the creation to futility? There are three options. It could be Adam who sinned and and his sin led to this futility, or it could be Satan potentially uh, who tempted Adam to sin. 
But we see that there's an authority represented here that is not true of either Adam or Satan. So a third option is what is most likely, that it is God who has subjected the created order to futility. This curse upon Adam and Eve and the serpent uh, and the ground has come because of God's righteous wrath against sin. But there is hope here. It says he was subjected in hope. The curse was given even in hope and promise of redemption. Even in Genesis 3, Eve is given a promise. And here in Romans 8.21, it says the hope, the content of this hope is that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, creation collectively groans for this revealing of the sons of God because when that occurs, creation finds redemption too. So if the creation is longing for this hope, how much more should we? So, we see that creation groans for the glory that awaits believers. And now we see the saints' eager expectation in verses 23 through 25. And by saints here, we, we refer to all who have become sons uh, or children of God by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. So this idea of groaning is extended from creation to believers Every saint, every believer should groan with this longing. And what's the source? Why, why, do we, why do we groan in this way? Well, it's because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. Why is this so exciting? Why would this lead to eagerness? Why would this lead to anticipation? Well, from the verses we've already read, we know that God's Spirit, this first fruit of, of the Spirit, indwells us. And that He is the Spirit of Christ, who unites us with Jesus, giving us His, uh, His life. And He's the Spirit of adoption, who makes us the sons of God. But we also, looking back just a little further in our chapter, to the earliest part of Romans 8... There in 8, 1 and 2, we read, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In verse 6, we're told that the Spirit gives life and peace. And, and in verse 11 that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will raise from the dead all who are in Jesus by the Spirit. This is just the first fruit. This is just the beginning of what God has in store for us. So with this beginning having begun, we wait. We wait with eagerness. We too are up on our tiptoes waiting for God's future glory. Now, it says that we are Awaiting our adoption here. 
eagerly, you know, it says we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. It's a little confusing maybe if we think and compare that to the earlier part, uh, earlier verses where it speaks of our being adopted by the Spirit, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. But he explains it in the next phrase. The adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we have an already not yet tension here. Already we are the sons of God, but we are becoming like, like him and will be like him when he comes. Death, decay, and disease are all present realities for us here. And like the, the created order, we're subjected to these things. But we groan for the day when, when that will be made right. And, and the fact that this is still to come is emphasized in verses 24 and 25. It says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In this hope we were saved. In this hope. So we were saved in the past. We have a hope for the future. And by the means of the Spirit's work, we have hope now. We were saved. We are being saved. We will be saved in that final day. There's an important qualifier that, that we have to recognize that this, this hope has. It says in 25, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not a good waiter. I don't enjoy waiting on things, especially things I really, really like. My children also look longingly to the end of uh, certain periods when they might have a, a promised snack or ice cream or something like this. But we're waiting for, what Paul's talking about here is waiting for something with real substance and value. We're not talking about a child who waits for, for snack time after nap time. We're not talking about a gummy bear kind of hope. We're talking about an eternal weight of glory, as 1 Corinthians 4.18 reminded us. And in, in 1 Peter, he says that this inheritance that we have is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. With this kind of inheritance in, in view, we wait patiently. It is worth the wait. And we, we wait eagerly, praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The first fruits of the Holy Spirit lead us and, and all of creation with us to groan for our adoption. That is the adoption of believers in its fullness. That is its redemption, the redemption of our bodies. And in this way, the Christian hope is rooted in the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we've seen the hope of the Holy Spirit in these verses 19 through 25. Now we'll think about the help of the Holy Spirit in verses 26 through 30. The help of the Spirit is specifically mentioned in verses 26 and 27 says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself 
intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There's a problem here. We're weak in our understanding. We're ignorant of what we should pray for. Now, God's Word gives us many details about how we should be praying and the things, the kinds of things we should be praying for. But there are many times, even with God's revealed will, we don't know exactly how that revealed will will play out in the specific puzzle pieces of our life. We're encouraged here to know that the Holy Spirit is not simply aiding us with how to pray, or even just helping us know what to pray. But one step better, He prays for us. He intercedes for us. He Himself prays on our behalf to God for the things we don't even know to ask for. Now this is no excuse to opt out of our praying. No, I I won't pray because I know the Spirit is praying for me. In fact, I know that the Son of God is interceding for me, so hey, Who can do it better than them? I'll leave it to the the professionals, if you will. This is not an excuse to opt out. When we think about the the instructions of of how to pray in the Scriptures, this is great encouragement for our praying. In our obedience to Christ's teaching to pray, To our all-good, all-gracious Heavenly Father, we can take confidence that even though we still know ourselves to be weak, and even though we know that we will at times pray amiss or incompletely, we can take confidence that we are not alone in our praying. In addition to this, we see that God Himself has ordained prayers a means through which He will bring about His will in us and in this world. If our, if our Savior is praying for us and the Spirit of God is praying for us, we ought not to think ourselves above them, but we too must join them in their praying. Now there's, there's an interpretive issue here that, that I think always comes up when this, these verses are read, when it says... Uh, that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the question is, is this the, the gift of the Holy Spirit or some kind of secret prayer language that some have and others don't? In brief, I would say no, it's not. Um, but I, I want to do more than just say no. Um, though, though the discussion is bigger than this, let me give you one major reason why I don't think this is the case. The reason that I don't think this is the case is the groanings of the Spirit spoken of here in verse 22 is common to all believers. And yet the gift of tongues is, is, is taught by Paul not to be a, a gift that all believers have. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, Paul lists a number of gifts that are distributed by the Spirit. He says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And he continues with the list, to one is given, to another is given. Well, the gift of tongues is included there. And the implication is that one will receive that gift and and another will not. At the end of the chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30, 
He asks a series of questions. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the expected answer of each of these questions is no. Not everyone does this. By contrast, in verse 27, we see that Paul clearly has all believers in view. He does not qualify the we and the us when he says, sorry, verse 26, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us. Spirit's intercession here is for all believers, not just a select few. More importantly, though, we see here that the Spirit's intercessory prayer for us is unfailing. The Spirit's intercessory prayer for us is unfailing. He says, And he who searches hearts know, this is verse 27, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, James tells us sometimes we fail because we don't pray. And other times we fail because we pray and we ask amiss so that we could spend it on our own lusts. Then there's another problem that um, can happen. It's just, uh, just not knowing what to pray for. The key point here is, unlike us, because of our ignorance, who must often qualify our prayers with, if it be your will, Lord, Paul teaches us that the Spirit intercedes for us, for the saints, according to the will of God. This is great hope because the prayers of the Spirit are therefore unfailing. So we've seen that the Spirit aids us in our praying, but we also see here in verses 28 through 30 a connection to the work of the Spirit, even though the Spirit is not specifically in view in these verses. These verses have monumental implications for our assurance as believers. Listen to these verses. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We don't have time to examine these concepts in detail. However, there's a link here between the work of the Spirit, the help of the Spirit, and our assurance. The link is this. The Spirit is interceding for us according to the will of God. And here in these verses, Paul unpacks what is the will of God for the believer. I'm going to say that again. The Spirit is interceding for us according to the will of God. And in these verses, Paul unpacks the will of God for his Spirit-dwelt indwelt children. When it says in, in verse 28, and we know that that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The all things includes all things. It's everything, including the sufferings that we've already discussed. 
The point isn't that, that everything in this world just kind of always works its way out. This isn't a Pollyannish view of, of reality, like, ah, it'll just be all good. Just how the world works. It'll all come out in the end. We're talking here about a God who is sovereignly and certainly bringing to completion the work that he began. Believers will be glorified, as the following verses make clear. And this is given to us in the promise of the first fruits of the Spirit. It says, those who love God and those who are called by God. Now, we might read this sometimes. And, all right, so I'm excited about this promise, but then it throws this other stuff in here. It's like, all right, so if I'm, if I'm loving God enough, then everything will work out for my good. Um, or, you know, if they're called, I mean, is this like a special, like, light from heaven kind of calling uh, that, that, you know, uh, Paul received, you know, and he went blind for three days? I haven't had that happen. I don't know if this promise really applies to me. Um, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that this is not, we're not talking about here a, some kind of subset of special force level believers that enjoy this promise. This is every believer, every disciple, every follower of Jesus Christ. For Paul's already referred to the called. He's called himself called and said, okay, well, Paul, you were knocked off a horse. I'm not going to include myself in that group. But he says, he's writing to all the saints and he says, you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Same word, all believers, all believers, all believers who have been adopted as God's sons and daughters by his spirit. And all of these things work together for good. That is, they work together for good to our conformity in Christ's image. And ultimately, that image will be glorified. We will see him and be like him, for we will see him as he is. As verse 29 through 30 unfold, it is an unbroken chain. Those God foreknows, he predestines to be conformed to the image of Christ. Those he predestines, he calls. Those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. There is no breakage in that chain. The key concept at the start of this chain is foreknowledge. We're not going to deal with each link, but I wanted to bring this one link up. This can mean to know about something beforehand, and we see this described of, of people in the New Testament. In Acts uh, 26, verse 5, and 2 Peter 3, 17, uh, the, the latter there, you therefore, dear friends, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard that you are not led astray by the error of these lawless people. The idea is they know what's going to happen. But for both of these human subjects, this is appropriate. As we look around at some of the other references uh, in the New Testament of when this is applied to God, we see a different meaning. Namely, that know in a relational sense. Know in the sense that God has set his love upon a chosen people. In Jeremiah 1.5, this, this idea of knowing in a relational sense is rooted in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
In Acts 2, 23, foreknowledge is, is spoken of in relation to Jesus and his suffering. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In 1 Peter 1.20, it says again of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. And speaking of God's people in Romans 11.2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says to Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? This is the, the second meaning, the setting of God's love on a chosen people is what I believe is in view here. And even for those who might favor a different understanding of foreknowledge, we, we must all agree that this chain is unbroken. Each link leads to the next. And at the end is, of this rescue is our glorification with Christ. It's to this end that the Spirit is praying for us. This is the revealed will of God for the believer. Not just the special force type that you might have in your mind, but every believer who calls upon the name of the Father by the Spirit. This is something worth rejoicing in and taking comfort in and finding encouragement in. So we've seen how the hope of the Holy Spirit is is in being the first fruits of God's glory to be revealed. And we've seen how the Holy Spirit is helping us endure until that glory is fully realized in us. These thoughts in mind, I want to just turn quickly to some points of application. First, I encourage you to thank God that he's not left you alone in this present age of suffering. Thank God that he's not left you alone in this present age of suffering. He's indwelt you by his spirit and he's giving you comfort through his presence. In the midst of your suffering, you always have an advocate who is praying and he's not just praying any old prayer. He's praying the perfect will of the Father for you. And that prayer, we know, as Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. That prayer is always effective. So rejoice. Give thanks to God that he's not left you alone. Secondly, wait with eager anticipation for the glory that is to be revealed. Set your hope on that day. Wait with eager anticipation for the glory that will be revealed. Set your hope on that day. The Spirit is a promise to us that he's, God has begun a work in us and will bring that work to completion. We don't have to worry if he's going to stop it in the middle. This golden chain that we've looked at at the end, this is the revealed will of God for those he's called into relationship with himself. So, waiting eagerly, pray that the Lord Jesus would come. Pray that he would come. Look toward it in prayer. And devote yourself to prayer. This being the, the third point. Devote yourself to prayer. As I said before, we know a servant is not greater than his master. And if God the Holy Spirit is interceding for you and the Son of God is interceding for you, don't discard prayer as though it is optional. Pray for yourself. 
Pray for your loved ones. Pray for the lost. Prayer is the ordained means whereby God accomplishes His, His work in the world. So let us devote ourselves to it. And fourth, be assured, be assured that God is working all things for your good and His glory. Be assured that He's working all things for your good and His glory. Now perhaps that you're here, things we've been examining in this passage, uh, they're not really all that hope-filled for you because as we've talked about the sons of God and the children of God, you know yourself uh, not to be um, because you yourself have never believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Admittedly, there's some bad news here. As we saw before in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This glory that, that God has revealed to us and that we're destined for if, if we're in Christ. Every single person who's ever lived outside of our Lord Jesus Christ has fallen short of this glory. Now, thankfully, the verse continues. It says, and that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That is made right before God by His grace as a gift. It's not something we earn. And it goes on to say, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus. He goes on to explain that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation, a fancy word for covering for sin that appeases God's wrath, absorbs God's wrath against our sin, shielding us from it, and bringing us in a right relationship with Him. And it says that this is received by faith. Just a, two chapters over from where we are now, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Would you, would you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today as your Savior? Would you have the hope that is filling creation and every believer by the Spirit? Let's pray. Our God of grace, we're overwhelmed as we think of the glory that is to come. You've given us a foretaste of it in your spirit, and you are sustaining us even now by his help. Lord, would you help us as a congregation to encourage one another with these things? Help us have faith in the midst of our suffering that you are working all things for our good. Lord, if there are those here that do not know you, would they call upon you? Would they be adopted by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? We pray all of these things that your will for us might be accomplished and that you might be glorified in us and in this world. Amen.